Hello. Welcome to Revolution. Sorry, my voice isn't very deep. It kind of lost dramatic effect. But um, welcome to Rev. If you guys have not been here, um, what is this? Thank you. Um, welcome. It's good to have you. Uh, these are just some normal announcements, um, some new things to keep in mind. Um, if you guys are w- wanting to get involved, for those of you who are new or just starting off the college semester, um, we do some service stuff in the East End. So every second Friday, uh, we do trash pickup. And um, so it's where we just get a group of guys and, and ladies um, and just walk around in the East End, hopefully to pick up some trash. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is not just to pick up for the community, but, you know, to hopefully um, get some gospel-centered conversations and, um, and to help build relationships with the people who live there. And so hopefully we can spread the gospel by doing something like that. And every third Friday, um, we do the cookouts in the East End. Um, these are all at the, uh, we meet at the Rev House in the East End, corner of 6th and uh, 7th and Campbell. And there'll be slides after the service showing all these things. Um, so if you guys forget, no worries. Um, and the cookouts are just where, you know, we cook out some food and people know about them, come in. And hopefully we can get to talk to them about the gospel as well. Um, we also have some small groups um, throughout the week you guys can get involved in. Those of you who uh, go to college and those of you who don't, we got some for everybody. Um, after the service here, Stephen, ha- he's going through Romans right now. And uh, so after the service, um, Steve, raise your hand. I don't know. I'm blinded. Always in the bathroom. Okay. Yeah. So Steve. I'm just kidding. Um, after the service, he will be doing his small group. So stick around if you want to um, hang out with Steve. Um, this is something new happening on Mondays on campus. Uh, Dave is doing something called Revolution on Campus. And so every Monday night at 8 in the uh, lecture hall in the library, he's going to be talking. And um, whether it's given like part of his sermon or something that he spoke about on Sunday night or something um, controversial or something uh, that needs to be talked about, um, he'll be talking. So uh, we really want you guys who are going to Shawnee to really bring people out there. It's a lot easier than bringing people to church. You know, it's already on campus and it'll be a good um, opportunity for people to hear uh, gospel-centered stuff. So Dave's talking about marriage tonight. He'll be talking about marriage there and what uh, um, what Christianity says marriage looks like, what God says marriage looks like. So it'll be really cool for people to learn about on campus. Um, so bring people to that. Also on Mondays at the Rev House, um, Chris Jones has a Bible study. He's doing Jesus is Greater Than Religion. Um, so if you guys have not read that, um, Jeff Bethke is pretty pretty gnarly dude. Um, and so that'd be a good one to get involved in. He's back there on the computers, Chris Jones, everybody. Um, Tuesday night, we have a campus Bible study. Um, me and Aaron are uh, helping lead that. That is going to be in the basement of Massey Lecture Hall. So you guys should go to uh, go to Shawnee. That would be really cool to see you out there. Um, on Wednesdays, David and Ryan both have small groups going on. Um, they'll both be on stage later, too. And Dustin has a men's small group every Friday night. Um, so keep in mind about these things. And after the service, you know, oh, hey, you didn't even tell me. There why am I even talking? Um, AJ and Allie also have one Thursday nights. Um, they're going through, I believe, um, Jonah. So that'll be really cool too. Um, one last thing. Free Market is November 7th. And for those of you who do not know what Free Market is, Free Market is this um, event that we host in the morning and uh, hopefully have like a bunch of clothes, any new and uh, used items that are, are nice, you know, not anything dingy or crappy that you just don't want to have anymore, but anything, you know, doesn't fit or anything you'd like to give away, um, we're taking donations now, um, so we're going to keep repeating this throughout um, as fall gets closer and uh, winter as well, so anything that, you know, people in the community doesn't have to be closed, it can be, you know, an old TV or an, or an old uh, microwave or something that, you know, 
something that you don't need anymore that's still good and usable, um, we're going to be giving away to people in the community. So, um, well, we'll just, uh, we're going to play some music here in a minute. Um, I'll pray real quick, and then we'll greet each other. And um, let's talk about favorite hobbies, you know, maybe something that you really like to do so people can get better know you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, giving us a place um, to get to worship you and gather in your name. We ask that you um, just allow us to take home this message tonight and get to worship you fully. Um, Allow us to understand you in ways that we haven't before. We thank you, God, for your salvation and everything you've given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's up, Revolution? There are way too many people here for it to be that week. One more time. What's up, Revolution? It was pretty much the same, but we'll take it, whatever. How are you guys? This is, this is insane. Like the college campus, you guys, like the, half the campus is here. This is legit. Raise your hand if you go to college at Shawnee. Raise your hand if you dropped out. <laughs> Just curious. I, did, I always make fun of myself. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what was just said, and I'm terrified. Um, all right, some of you guys don't know me. Some of you guys do. Hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this like crowd control stuff. Uh, like, Is this your first time here? Raise your hand. Yeah. If you know me personally, raise your hand. Wow. Okay. So some of you here don't know me. So most of you, this is a repeat for you. Uh, I have had a really big year this year. Uh, I feel like this is the year that I became an adult. Um, <laughs> Some of you may or may not know, uh, I bought a house back in May, which was insane. And uh, yeah, mom's glad that I'm gone, and Ryan's glad that I'm out of the Rev house. And, uh, and then I got married back in July, so that was pretty awesome. I got married to this beautiful lady in the front row, Autumn, next to my sister. Please don't get them confused, because that would be really weird. Uh, <laughs> right? Uh, but just real quick, just thinking about, like, I was thinking earlier about buying a house, and this is just really funny to me. Like, buying a house is crazy. Like, uh, for the last 23 years of my life, like, I would tell my friends or something, yeah, I live here, and then we'd go into said dwelling place, and they would say, okay, which room is your room? And I'd take them, this is my room. Now, as of this year, they, I tell someone, that's my house, and they're like, which room is your room? And I'm like, all of them. <laughs> like, I own all of the rooms. I can sleep in the kitchen, and there's nothing anyone can say to me, except now that I'm married and it's happened before Autumn said, Dave, get out of the floor, put the spatula down. This is weird. You're a grown man. Um, that actually happened. I used a potato for a pillow last week, so that was, that was weird. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm essentially a child with a beard um, that has way too much responsibility on my plate. <laughs> but again, all the rooms are mine, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, but past that, the biggest thing uh, in my life ever, aside from coming to faith in Jesus, has happened back in July. Like I said, I am married now. Um, that is a huge life changer, knowing that Autumn is always going to be with me, right? That she's always going to, as long as we're both living, she's always going to be here right by my side. Um, she's stuck with me is essentially what I'm saying, which is great news for me because I plan on getting fat. Um, <laughs> seriously, it's going to get bad here in the next couple of years, babe. Uh, <laughs> but if you're wondering why I'm talking about marriage and being married, it's because that's what we're talking about this evening. We're talking about marriage. Um, right, but it's, that's not because that I got married in July and I thought, you know, I'm going to go ahead and handle marriage now. Um, we actually had planned on doing this sermon series on marriage um, 
like back in like April or something like that, we decided to do this. And uh, what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks, um, we're going to be covering three different topics. We're going to be doing marriage tonight, uh, divorce next week, and we're going to be covering what the Bible says about homosexuality uh, two weeks from tonight. So everyone's going to hate me within the next month, and that's cool with me. So it's going to be a good time, marriage, divorce, and homosexuality, super controversial stuff. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> all right. And uh, at first, though, I'm going to be totally honest. At first, I was, I was really nervous to have to cover uh, marriage. Uh, but, you know, now seeing as of today, I've been married for 44 days. I feel like I'm a seasoned veteran. And uh, <laughs> I've got this thing on lockdown um, and I've not really fought with Autumn yet, so apparently our marriage is going better than everyone else's, so you know, whatever. Uh, I feel like I'm an authority. Um, I'm kidding, obviously. Um, but the Bible does say a lot about marriage, right? So even if I've been married for 50 years, I feel like I'm still not an authority on marriage, right? But God is. God created the whole institution. He created the whole game, and he's wiser than I. So what I'm going to be doing this evening is I'm just going to be telling you what the book says. I'm just going to be talking about what the Bible says and the implications we can draw out of it. Um, but before we begin, I figured that I should explain why we're talking about marriage. Um, why should you care? Right? Raise your hand in here if you're married. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's what I thought. There's not a whole lot of married people, right? Most of us aren't married. So why would we talk about this, right? Well, the truth is most of you will get married, right? Not everyone, though. God actually calls some people into celibacy for his glory, and that is okay, and that is God-honoring, and that's right on. But most of you will do this. Most of you will get hitched at some point. And my redneck's coming out. Get hitched. I don't even own a truck, whatever. Um, sadly, though... Uh, sadly, though, even though most of us are going to get married, um, most of us have not seen what a good, godly Christian marriage is supposed to be. Um, and if the, any of you here aren't Christians, um, you might not know what that's supposed to look like at all because you have no idea what Christianity teaches about marriage. Um, but those of us, even, even those of us who grew up in church, we still don't really know. You know, I'm a child of divorce, and I know that some of you are too, so we really don't have a good look um, at that, generally speaking. Um, so we decided that this would be a solid thing for us to cover, considering most of us don't know what that looks like, and most of us are going to get married. And in addition to that, marriage has been talked about a lot this year, right, with the Supreme Court ruling back in uh, June on gay marriage being the prime thing that we've heard a lot of marriage discussion. Um, but we're, we're not going to be talking a whole lot about that. Again, we're talking about homosexuality a couple weeks from now, so you can come in here then if you want. Um, but what about marriage, right? So what about marriage? What's the point of this whole thing? Uh, most of us don't really know anything about marriage, um, aside from stupid, stupid bumper sticker slogans and stuff. I hate them. I hate Christian bumper sl- like bumper sticker crap. I hate it. And like, and what like media tells us, and like what stupid people on Facebook that can't spell say about marriage and things like that. Um, most of us don't really know. Like, and, and we're especially clueless to what the Bible has to say because um, most of us don't read our Bibles. So there's your plug. Read your Bibles. Um, So what we're going to do this evening is just give a big view of what marriage is, why God created it, and what the whole point of it is. Um, And I think that we're going to see that it's something much more um, and and much bigger than just tax breaks and a piece of paper like so many people in today in our culture um, say that it is. right? And in fact, we're going to see that marriage actually points to God himself and his love for his people. All right, so if we're going to talk about marriage... The first thing we have to do is define it. Um, You always have to define your terms. Just for the record, if you're ever going to have a conversation, always define your terms because you can use one word and people have a whole other idea. Um, So in order for us to define our terms, we are going to start with the first marriage ever, which means we're going to Genesis. Um, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Um, If you're new here, there are blue Bibles out there. 
It's too dark to use them, but take one home. They're free. If you don't have a Bible or the Bible you have is hard to read, it's going to be up here on the projector behind me. But let's just let's check out what the Bible says about the first marriage. Um, keep in mind the uh, background. God's creating everything. Um, he just calls it, calls it all good, and we're picking up there. It's still part of the creation story. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. All right, so that's what we got. So from this text, what we can see, we get get a few things out of this. We see, one, that Eve was made for Adam. Um, it's not like a subservient thing. The Bible says that male and female, God created them in his image. He created them both. But Eve was made for Adam. Um, she was made from Adam's rib, right, which tells us that they're united, like this whole metaphor for two becoming one flesh. She was literally a part of Adam that God used to create her. Um, and we see that um, Moses actually wrote Genesis. Moses writes, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother, and he clings to his wife, which means that um, Within marriage, we prioritize, we reprioritize everything. Um, This is the strongest commitment between two human beings. It's stronger than a paternal bond. It's stronger than uh, friendships. It's stronger than everything. You're bound to your wife. The two become one. And then Jesus actually in Matthew 19.6, he quotes um, part of the passage we just read. um, And then he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So this thing is for life. All right, so here's what we've got. Here's what we're looking at. Taking those principles that we just read out of Genesis and the one thing that Jesus said in Matthew 19, we've got this. Marriage is a lifelong commitment that supersedes all other human commitments where two people begin to live and operate as one, and it's between one man and one woman. Right? And the reason why I say one man and one woman, there's no wiggle room for that, is Moses says... Um, a man leaves his father and his mother, right? There's a heterosexual relationship, and the man clings to his wife, right? So there we have another heterosexual relationship, that that's the norm. So just to throw that out there, um, and just tra- like tracking with that for a second, I want to take a second and just point this out. Um, marriage is not merely just a legal institution. It's not just a byproduct of like a governmental or societal thing. Um, it was given by God himself as a blessing to humanity, and therefore, since God's the one who created it and God's the one who gives it, um, God gets to define it. Um, and he's the one who, who truly gets to define it. So legality in a given country does not trump the definition given by the one who created it. All right, and I'm just throwing this at you, that's not coming from a place of bigotry whatsoever. If you think it is, please come confront me after the service. I'd like to explain that to you more. I'm just being logical here. All right, so the one who creates it gets to define it, not men. All right, but, um, but if this has been given to us by God, 
again, it's not merely a legal or a governmental thing. And we're actually going to see that marriage points to something much greater than itself. And we're going to see that. It's supposed to be like a living parable. We're going to check that out later on. Um, So that's the biblical definition of marriage. But my next question is, why marriage? Right? Why would God create it? I always, whenever I'm thinking about stuff or reading the Bible, I always just, I'm always throwing questions at the Bible. So why would God create marriage? Well, Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And verse 20, the second half, 20b says, But still, so after God makes all the animals and everything else, and Adam names them, says, But still there was no helper just right for him. All right, so just real quick, that doesn't mean that God wasn't enough for Adam or that Adam wasn't satisfied with God because that would mean that Adam had made something else as God and no sin had entered the world yet because they hadn't eaten the fruit Adam and Eve hadn't. So there's no sin in the world. So Adam's not dissatisfied with God or anything like that, and it's not that God's not sufficient for Adam. But we do know these two things instead. One, in Genesis 1.27, God says that he wants mankind to multiply. Now, I don't have a biology degree, but you can't do that alone. Right? Some of us have tried. It doesn't work. Um, whatever. Um, but God wants mankind to multiply, and Adam can't do that by himself. All right, and the second thing that we see is that God says he made Adam in his image. All right, it's, if you're a theology nerd, it's this idea, it's a Latin word called the imago Dei, the image of God, um, where God has instilled within human beings certain aspects of himself. Like the Bible says God is the perfect embodiment of justice, Right? That's why he has to punish sin. That's why Christ had to go to the cross because someone had to pay uh, for sin. God is just. So what happens? We see something that shouldn't take place and we want justice. Why we have legal systems. It's just an outpouring of that image of God in us. We see that God is a God of love. So what do we do? We want to love people. We want to express our um, affections for people. Um, we see that God is triune, which means he's three in one, three separate persons, one being, one essence that is God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, which means that God is relational, right? He's in perfect communion with himself, which means that we're relational, right? We want to have friends. We want to have family. We want to love people. We want to express this image in us, and God is a God that gives, right? So we want to give of ourselves to people, right? It's this image of God that's in us that we want to express, and Adam has that in himself, right? So knowing those two things, we see this. Um, Adam is basically on his own level in all of the, uh, everything that's ever been created. Adam stands alone. There isn't anything quite like him. He has nothing that he can be in genuine relation with on his own level, right? God's above him and everything else is below him. Um, So there's nothing that he can express this image of God in himself to, right? So God creates Eve, it isn't good that man can't express these things that he's created for. All right? And God says man needed a helper. Now, we think helper, and I don't know, you guys remember Bob the Builder? Like, can we fix it? Yes, we can. Si se puede. I think that was that part of that, or was that Dora the Explorer? I don't know, whatever. I don't have kids, whatever. Uh, right, but we think helper, and we think, like, like, I'm a happy helper. Is that like another kid's song, something? I'm, something's wrong with me. I don't want to have children yet. That's not what I'm getting at. Don't get me wrong on that. Um, sorry, Alden. Um, 
But we think of helper and we think of like kids, right? Where like you're trying to hang something up in your house and you have a real hammer and some nails. And then you give your kid like a plastic hammer and like just don't get on my nerves, don't get in the way. And that's how we tend to view the word helper uh, in English. But that's not the case. Whenever God says that Adam needed a helper, this isn't like a child. Um, This is, the Hebrew word actually gives this connotation that it's one to fill up where someone else is lacking. Right? God is actually referred to as a helper. It's the exact same word in the Old Testament. God's referred to as our helper. Um, which means that we can't do it alone, right? So if Adam's never meant to go through life alone, he needs someone to fill up what he is lacking. The Hebrew word actually gives this feeling of an appropriate match just for Adam, like something that's going to be complementary to man, right? Again, because Adam was not made to go it alone. But I want to be clear again, this wasn't plan B, right? God knew all along that he was going to make Eve for Adam. It's not like he made Adam and was like, crap, Adam's not happy. I screwed up, right? That's not the case. He knew he was going to make Eve all along, that they would be married. Um, And further, I just just want to make sure that we know this. Um, Again, because I I tried to craft this sermon to where even if you're not married, there's something for everyone to glean from this. Um, This idea of expressing the image of God in us and being relational is not exclusive to marriage. It's not at all. Marriage is just one way. It's a very powerful way that we can express this, right? But, But it's not the only one. Like, go with me on this. Marriage usually leads to kids. It just does. It's part of the design for marriage. God wants to be fruitful and multiply. Kids equals population, right? (laughs) I'm giving like a socioeconomic class right now, Um, which leads to family and friends, right? That we get to express and experience the joy of loving people with, right? There are people around us, even if we're not married to them, that we can express this image of God in us. So this is not just... I just don't want us to get the wrong idea that you can't express and be what God created you for without being married because that's just not true because God doesn't call all people to be married. He doesn't. Look at Jesus, right? Jesus clearly expressed the image of God. He's actually called the visible image of the invisible God and Jesus wasn't married. So Jesus had this game on lock, right? Expressing all these things that God puts in humanity. Paul wasn't married. Countless other men and women in church history that we can model our lives after, right? But in all, back to the point, in all, God created marriage because it isn't good for man to be alone. It was a grace to mankind. All right, but when I was contemplating asking Autumn to marry me, you know, (laughs) when I was thinking about Autumn marrying me, uh, you know, following the sage advice of Beyonce, if you like it, you should put a ring on it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you like that? I, I make myself laugh. Like, these jokes and stuff are not for you. Like, they're cathartic for me. Uh, I was cracking myself up when I wrote that. Um, but right, whenever I was contemplating marriage, um, I knew a lot of that stuff that we just talked about, that, like, we express the image of God and that marriage is an institution given by God to us. Uh, I knew a lot of that stuff, right? But I had another huge question. And honestly, I probably kept asking questions to put off asking Autumn to marry me uh, because, ladies, you scare the crap out of all of us. I want, I'm not saying you're crazy or anything like that, but we just don't understand you most of the time. You guys are, you guys are terrifying. Um, no matter how small you are or how like, cute you seem, y'all are mean. And uh, I'm playing, I'm playing. We're afraid of you, just to be totally honest. Right? But in all seriousness, the question that I would ask myself, even though I knew a lot of that information already, was, was this. What's the point of marriage? Right? What's the point? I get that it's a gift. I get that it's between a man and a woman and all that stuff. But Jesus didn't do it. So what's the big idea? Why should anyone want to get married? 
right? Surely we could have populated the earth without it. Again, you don't need a biology degree. You just need MTV to figure that one out. You don't have to be married to populate the earth. Um, Like we could have had friendships to express the image of God. So what's the point? What's the point of marriage? But what if marriage is not just tax benefits? It's not just sex. It's not just population. It's not just another way to express the image of God and all that. But what if all that stuff is just secondary, right? What if marriage is actually meant to point to God? when it's done properly between two believers who are intentionally trying to point to God? What if that's the point of marriage? What if I told you in addition to everything else in all of creation, God is also the whole point of marriage? That might flip the script on us. But that is a completely, completely foreign thought to us, that, that marriage could be about something or someone else that's not us. Right? In our cultural narrative, right? track with me on this, in our cultural narrative, marriage is primarily about us. It really is. Marriage is primarily about us. Sure, you have to have like two to tango, but like it's mainly about you, right? And I think it's because we as sinners, right, in a fallen world, because this image of God in us has been distorted because we, we, are, we are sinners because of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Because it's, as sinners, we always have this tendency to take gifts from God and just bastardize them, right? To just pervert them and ruin them and make them into something that they were never meant to be. Right? So we, we do that with marriage. We make marriage all about us instead of not about God. Right? I, I think about this. I, and you hear these a lot, and some of these are corny. I, you need to find your soulmate. I hate that. Soulmate? I don't know what that means. Like a soul patch? Uh, you need to find your soulmate. Right? You need to find the one for you. You need to find someone that's going to make you, you happy, that's going to add to your life. Right? These are the things that everyone tells you whenever you're looking for a spouse. Look for someone who can add to you. It's all about us. Right, And then what do we see? Again, within this cultural narrative, we see this, that when your spouse no longer meets the requirements that you have set on them, right? whatever the requirements are to make you happy, whether it's that they be good looking or that they be in shape or that they hold down a good job or if you're a gold digger that they make a lot of money, um, like whatever it is, if they no longer meet this requirement that you have set on them to add to your life, you chuck them out. Right? You find a new spouse. It's selfish. And yet that's the cultural narrative for marriage. If they don't make you happy anymore, if they aren't adding to you, get rid of them and get a new one. Right? But here's the thing. If marriage is actually about us, then that kind of thinking actually makes sense. Like it really does. Like forget a lifetime commitment to someone. Love is then conditional. Right? If marriage is actually about us, it actually makes sense to live that way and for divorce rates to be high. Right? Consider this, 40 to 50%, it's not quite 50% of marriages end in divorce anymore because not as many people are getting married. Like I was reading a study about that this past week. 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's the same even within the church. Right? People who profess to be Christians. Right? So surely then, we must be missing the real point of marriage if God says it's meant to be for life. Surely we must be missing the point, right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to give you a big sweep of the biblical narrative and how it relates to marriage as best I can, right? So in the beginning, we see that God makes everything. He makes, makes mankind. He creates marriage. He marries Adam and Eve. And then later on, we see God rolls up to this dude that ends up becoming a man we all know as Abraham, And he says, I'm going to bless the nations through you. I'm going to put the Messiah through your bloodline. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. 
right? And from this dude's bloodline, we eventually get Jesus later on, we're going to see. Um, and then, right, further on in, in the Bible, in Exodus, right, we see this nation of Israel, which is Abraham's offspring, that God made good on his promise um, to Abraham to create this, this huge nation of people out of Abraham's bloodline, right? So Israel goes into slavery in Egypt. This is all makes sense in a second. And then God, using Moses, a lot of us have seen like the movies like Ten Commandments, or like that crappy one, Gods and Kings, or whatever it was last year, it came out as terrible. Um, that God brings Israel out of slavery using Moses. And then, while Israel is in the wilderness, um, God makes a covenant with Israel. And that's kind of what's really important for us to lay down right now. God makes a covenant. A covenant is like a love contract. It's binding. God will not break covenants with people. He cannot. God is always faithful. He's always bound to his own nature, and his nature is faithfulness. So he makes this love contract with Israel that they are his people, right? Those who worship him, those who um, give their life to him, those are his people, and he will forever be their God. That's the covenant that he makes with them, that he will not turn his back on them, that he will love them, that he will stay faithful. And from then on, this is where this all makes sense, from then on, after God enters this covenant relationship with this people that he's chosen for himself, he begins to refer to Israel as his wife. All, right, all over the place. We, we can see in Hosea, um, we can see in uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, tons of Old Testament spots. We see God referring to his people as his bride, right? And we see how he acts like a faithful husband to them, that he loves them, he cares for them. He's jealous for their affection. He wants them. He desires his wife. He's faithful to his wife. Even, even whenever Israel cheats on God, right, commits this spiritual adultery by turning their back on him and doing what they want to do and not worshiping him and not obeying his commands, that they cheat on him, that God still remains faithful to them. That even whenever God punishes them, He's still faithful to them. He's still not turned his back on them. He's disciplining them because he loves them, right? Even in what God calls his people's whoring, right? They're sinning, that they become prostitutes and prostituted themselves to other things, to their own desires, that God still calls them his bride. He never stops doing that, ever. He loves them with an unfailing love because he has entered this covenant with them. And that is a true covenant, Right, that is truly unconditional love. That, that God's people could grieve him, could hurt him, could turn their back on him, could cheat on him, could abandon him, and, and can rebel against him. And yet God continues to pursue his people. In Hosea, he, he talks like a husband just longing for his wife to return to him. He says, I remember whenever you were in the desert and I made this covenant with you. I remember when I first brought you out of Egypt and you presented yourself as a virgin to me and I took you to myself, and I loved you. I remember that. Come back to me. God's always faithful. He's always desiring people, even when they cheat on him, even when they sin, even when they do things that displease him. Because his desire for his bride is unyielding. And ultimately, God's desire for his chosen people culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. Right, we're in love. Jesus came to secure a bride by his death and resurrection. That Jesus came to die for a people that God had chosen for himself. 
Whenever Jesus came to earth, he came to save an unfaithful people who have spent their lives sinning, who had spent their lives rebelling, cheating on God with false gods like money, power, sex, status. People had spent their whole lives doing their own will and ignoring God's. I'm talking Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for us. If you're a Christian, you're part of the bride of Christ. Jesus came for you. Jesus came to pursue you. Whenever you wanted nothing to do with him, he pursued you because he loved you and he claimed you as his own. Then we see on the cross, after Jesus lived his perfect life in complete obedience to God, that Jesus suffered all of God's anger, all of God the Father's displeasure. He suffers hell itself on the cross in order that God's wrath would never fall on his bride so that sinners could then be presented to the ultimate husband, Jesus, as clean and innocent if they would believe in him. This is how much Jesus loves his people. This is how much God loves his bride. He suffered for our sins so that he could present us to himself as a pure bride with no imperfections because he had paid for them already. This is the purest example of love, this self-sacrificial, unconditional faithfulness to a people who don't deserve it. Jesus came to earth to be the perfect husband to us, to always be faithful to us, to do for us what we couldn't do, to fill up what we were lacking in, and we were lacking in righteousness. And he gives us everything that we need, and he takes care of us, and he leads us. Right, so the whole point of marriage is to point to a much greater reality of Christ and his church and God's unfailing love for his bride. That's the whole point. The whole point is that our marriages would be living parables, right? Like living stories to point to this, stories of pursuing one another and loving and forgiving each other, of unconditional love and faithfulness in spite of the offenses of the other party because that's how Jesus loves us. That's the whole point, right? So if, if marriage is, is meant to point, to this, point us to the greater reality of Christ and his church, then what does that really look like? Right? What does that look like? Boots on the ground, right? I always want that. Give me some application, man. Like, like how do I live this out? What's this supposed to look like? What, what should I be convicted about in my own life? Well, the Bible, luckily for us, uh, the Bible gives us a great passage that shows us the guiding principles of a God-honoring marriage that reflects this model of Christ in the church. And I'm going to warn you, uh, I'm going to try to do this as quick as I can, uh, but there are going to be some things that aren't culturally popular. They're just not. Um, some of you might think I'm a sexist at some point, and I assure you I'm not. You can ask my, my, anyone who knows me, my wife, my mother, who is very strong and an entrepreneur and just rocking it for women's rights. I love her back there. She is just owning the scene, making her money, right? Um, sorry. Why do I turn into a thug sometimes? Like, chase that paper, mama. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but... Uh, but this, this text we're getting ready to look at is going to say some things that are culturally unpopular for us, right? But it's God's word, and we should trust it. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to trust what God, the creator of marriage, and the one who is omnipotent and omniscient and knows everything, I'm going to trust what he says about something he created more than I'm going to trust what our culture says about it. That's just me. Um, and if you're a Christian, I think you should trust it too, because it's by this word that we're saved. So we should trust the Bible, right? But Ephesians 5.21 through 33 is what I'm talking about. Uh, this is a fairly famous uh, passage whenever we're talking about marriage, so let's check it out. It's kind of lengthy. Bear with me. Paul wrote this. And further, right, so Paul's been, sorry, 
little bit of background. Uh, Paul's been talking about how to live a life that honors God. He says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is also an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Right, so from this passage, I see three big principles that are supposed to govern a God-honoring Christian marriage. And the three things, one is authority and submission. Uh, the second one is self-sacrificial love. And the third one is forgiveness and grace. Right? And just real quick, the first one, authority and submission. If you're married, this applies to you. If you're not married, uh, keep it in mind for your future. If you do get married, the other two apply to all of us in all the relationships that we have. All right? So let's take a quick glance at how these things play out in our lives. Um, the first one, authority and submission. This is the one that I said people are probably going to call me a sexist on. Bear with me till the end. Um, we, in, this, in, the, in, in reality, if you're a Christian, we, the church, right, all the whole community of believers throughout the world, we submit to Christ. He is the head of the church, right? That means that we submit to his lead. We submit to his lordship, which means whatever he says, we're, we're following along. We trust him with our whole life because he has loved us. He has died for us. He has been resurrected for us. He has saved us. He has been faithful to us whenever we were not faithful to him. We trust Jesus to lead us. He has our best interests in mind always, and he's proved it to us in that while we were yet sinners, he pursued us and died for us to make us his bride so we can trust him. So whenever Jesus says, don't do this, and rather do this instead, we go with it. We trust that. Even if it doesn't seem to make sense, even if it's counter to our nature or countercultural, we trust that he loves us and he is our Lord, so he has authority over us. We trust him. All right, so in this metaphor of marriage, we have wives that are representing the church and husbands who are representing the head or a type of Christ. But don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying husbands are, are like a little Christ. I'm not saying that. This doesn't mean that the husband is better or godlier. It just means that he is the head of the relationship, that he is the authority, right? Um, this means this for wives. We're going to do the same order as Paul did, wives first and then husbands. This means that wives, trust your husbands. Trust them. Allow him to lead you spiritually and in general in your life, right? What I mean by that is allow final decisions to rest on his shoulders. I'm not telling you not to put your input in. That is incredibly valuable. Autumn always tells me what she thinks about like what, what we should do or anything at all or how we should handle money or anything like that. Take the input, but ultimately allow the final decision to rest on your husband and trust him, right? That that you should follow his lead on, on spiritual things and, and again, in general. Um, but also, I think that, that women need to bear this in mind too. Um, I feel like I'm in dangerous territory talking to women as a man, whatever. Um, 
But women should call their husbands to the carpet whenever he sins too. So I'm not saying to be subservient and I'm not saying just to let him roll and do whatever he wants. I'm not saying that at all. Call him to the carpet when he sins because the whole point is that we both, husband and wife, are submitting to Christ. But to submit to your husband means to back him up. Right? If he makes a decision or he makes a judgment call, back him up. Don't try to go behind his back and usurp his position or usurp his authority. Um, and it also means to fill up where he's lacking. Right? Point things out to him. Love him. Pray for him. Right? But ultimately, don't let him lead you to sin. Submit to Jesus first. So what I'm saying is, wives, if you're married, trust your husband. Let him be the one who leads the relationship. Let him be that. That's, that's what Paul says the biblical model of marriage is. Now, I'll say this. Many men, right, now it's dude's turn. This is going to get fun. Uh, many men have used this passage as a rod to, like, metaphorically beat their wives. And some have used this as an actual excuse to beat their wives. And that is evil, and that is satanic, and that is not the purpose of this passage, ever. All right, so let's go on to the role of men. Right, men are to have authority in their homes. Men are to have authority in their relationship. And authority means this, nutshell. You are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he died for us. That's the kind of affection and thinking of your wife first that you should have. Is that you would lay your life down without a thought for her. Christ thought of us first. He did not consider himself. He did not consider the suffering that he was going to have to endure in comparison to how much he loved us and wanted us for himself. So husbands are to think of their wives first in all things. So if they're leading, they're leading with their wives' best intention or best interest in mind. Right? If, if a man's in authority in his home, it means that he is to cultivate his wife's spiritual and personal growth. Right, that he is to serve her in all areas. He is to lead her in prayer. He, he's to be the one that comes to her and says, okay, hey, let's study this together. Let's pray with this. And, and sadly, uh, many of us, and, and I've only been married for like a month and a half, and I've already dropped the ball on this on some level, we don't lead that way. We don't lead spiritually in our homes, and that's completely unacceptable. That's not cool. Right? Authority is not given. I just want to say this. Authority is not given to husbands in order to make their lives easier, where they can sit in their lazy boy with a beer gut and say, do this, you got to submit. Right? That's not the point. Authority is actually going to make your life harder. Authority is the responsibility to love and pursue your wife like Christ pursues his wife. And that might mean that if you're a nerd like me and you'd rather spend a couple hours downstairs reading books and studying for something or meeting with someone to talk about whatever problems they have going on within the church and you can see that time's ticking down, it's getting close to bedtime and you've not really hung out with your wife, you shelve whatever work that you have left to do and you go hang out with your wife and pursue her and pray with her and hang with her and see how she's doing, what she wants to talk about because it's about her, her best interest. That's your responsibility. That's what it means to lead. Right? So you might make your life harder sometimes in order to better her. Right? So i got to say this. Never, dudes, ever use this text to force your wife or your future wife to be subservient. She is God's daughter and Christ's bride before she is your wife. Never forget that. You should treat her as such. Right? But if it's, okay, so that's, that's the first one, right? And, and, and this willful taking on of responsibility and I'm sorry that took me so long. I knew I needed to thoroughly address that so no one got the wrong idea up in here. Um, but this willful taking on of responsibility and willful loving submission leads us to the second one, leads us to self-sacrificial love. 
right? Or because of our mutual submission to Jesus, that we um, married couples are constantly laying down our desires for the good of the other person. And this applies to all relationships that all people have, but especially within marriage, that we would consistently lay down our desires for the good of someone else. To quote Paul, we must take on the mind of Christ. He says that in Philippians 2.5, that we would take on this servant heart where we're constantly not thinking of ourselves, but we're thinking what will be the best for the other person or what will be best for my spouse in this situation? How can I serve them better? What do they need? I love them. I want to lay down um, whatever I have to in order to better them. I'm willing to inconvenience myself for another person, whether that's my time or my money or my effort, or I have to lay down my goals and my personal desires for a season or maybe even permanently in order to better them because I care for them and I'm willing to sacrifice for them because I love them, right? This kind of love imitates the agape love of Christ to us. Agape meaning um, active and faithful and never yielding, right? This love where Jesus didn't consider his suffering in order to save us. He just acted because he loved us and desired us. So self-sacrificial love is that. And then if we're going to be taking on the mind of Christ, then we have to be walking in constant forgiveness and grace in any relationship. Again, whether it's your spouse or your friend or your family, we are going to displease and and hurt each other at some point in all relationships. What happens whenever you get a bunch of sinners in a room? We tick each other off and we act selfishly, right? We blame shift whenever something bad happens. We are careless with our words and careless with our actions and we elevate our needs over the needs of others. It's just what we do. We're sinners. We're jacked up people. We need Jesus, Thank God Jesus is faithful to us, even though we screw up like that all the time. Right? But if we're going to imitate the love of Christ to his bride, whether you're married or not, we must be people of forgiveness. If we're going to imitate the love of Christ for his people, which means that we don't keep a record of wrongs. We're not holding um, grudges against people. And we have to love other sinners, people who have offended us and transgressed us and hurt us, no matter how deeply they've hurt us or what they've done, we must forgive them because as sinners, we have been loved by Christ. It's this constant heart posture of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, right? And and forgiveness is is the epitome of selflessness, right? It's the most Christ-like thing that we can do. Think about this. Whenever we forgive, truly forgive like the Bible says we should, we are not considering how our rights have been violated and how this person owes us. We are not holding conditions on their forgiveness and we're not expecting repayment for this forgiveness. We are choosing to look past the faults and offenses of others and love them in spite of it all. That's how Christ has loved us. He always loves us in spite of our offenses, in spite of our failures. So that's what we have to do that. That's what we have to do then, right? And this forgiveness of God doesn't ever run out for us. So neither must our love and our grace and our forgiveness towards other people, right? If we have truly experienced the love of God, then we must display it in the same amount and the same way to other people. So constant love and unceasing grace must become our distinguishing marks in every relationship we have, married or not. All right, so bearing all that stuff in mind, my prayer is that we would take these principles, right? Take these principles of displaying the image of God, right? Of, of selflessness, forgiveness, unconditional love, submission to Jesus, self-sacrificial love, and pursuing sinners. That we would take all these biblical concepts that surround marriage and show them in every relationship that we have. Again, 
married or unmarried, we can display this to everything. All right, my prayer is that we would display the affection and faithfulness of God to sinners every day of our lives in our, rea- in our interactions with even strangers, that we just be gracious towards them and seek their best interest and be willing to inconvenience ourselves because we love them. And in doing so, that we could then point everyone that sees us to the greater reality of the grace of God given to his people through Jesus, where he suffered for us to make us his bride. All right, so as we leave here, Let's do our best to leave here with hearts bent on showing others our God who wants relationship with them, who loves them in spite of their sin, no matter how jacked up and wrecked their life is, no matter what kind of sins that they've committed, no matter how bad that they've grieved God, that God has pursued them and that he will never stop loving them once they come to him. That's because he has been pursuing them all along. By our words and our actions and the posture of our heart, let's show the world around us that Jesus is the faithful lover of sinners that we all need. Let's pray. Father, you are are better to us than we deserve. Thank you for being the faithful husband that we need because we we live like whores most of the time we cheat on you daily we sell ourselves out to things that we think are going to make us happy instead of finding our joy in you we pursue our own desires instead of pursuing yours we we, we don't reciprocate the love that you've shown us to you and we don't reciprocate it to other people god i pray that we would we would take this concept of your love for us and your forgiveness and your grace and your self-sacrificing spirit and apply it to our marriages and apply it to our relationships with people that we go to school with and people that we work with that we would just be more gracious people because we understand that we don't deserve to be loved by you and yet you have pursued us. Thank you for choosing us and thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name. Amen.